This church, the church in Thessalonica, was planted early on in Paul's ministry on the second missionary journey, actually, which began not too long after the uh, Jerusalem Council, which you probably recall was put together to deal with the controversy over circumcision as the gospel first went to Gentiles, there was the controversy, should Gentiles, do Gentiles need to be circumcised before they can be included in the church? And so the, the gospel came to Thessalonica very early in the apostolic era, at the very beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' commission to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Church expansion at the time Paul came to Thessalonica had really just begun. And Paul, as we know, was, was committed to that. His passion was for the kingdom of God to fill the earth in fulfillment of the original creation mandates. And prophecies that speak in the Old Testament speak of God's glory, filling the entire earth like Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I am very certain, actually, that Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, that he longed for the day, and he, he looked for the day of which Revelation speaks when the dwelling place of God will be with man, when God brings to pass the the restoration of mankind. Indeed, of all of creation, as he promised, that his glory fills the earth. Well, how does this happen? How does God bring about this great and wondrous promise, this amazing thing? Is it by some great and vast miracle? Well, in a manner of speaking, it is. But I think Paul gives us a clue, some clues in this chapter. And we discover here some, some important principles and practices that we want to be sure that we ourselves embrace as God's people. And I want you to see, first of all, that it begins with God, of course. It, it must. All things begin with God. It begins in the counsel of His will. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God has a great and wondrous plan, and God is working out that plan piece by piece by piece. If you look in verse 4, you see that Paul alludes to election, to God's sovereign choice of a, of a people who will become this new mankind in Christ, His, his loved and, and treasured possession, the new Israel, really, the seed of Abraham. And you don't have to read very far into the Bible before you come to understand that it has to be this way. It can be no other way. Adam and Eve, as you know, were in the Garden of Eden. They were put there to be covenant keepers. They were God's people living in God's presence. They were serving Him faithfully. They were obeying His commands. They were exercising dominion as He commanded. And they were to be fruitful and, and multiply. And they were to fill the earth with with image bearers, they were to expand God's kingdom unto His glory. But they didn't, of course. They rebelled, and by the rebellion against their Creator and their King, they forfeited the promised covenant reward, and they were cast out of the garden. This is familiar to you, of course. And you know that, that God made a promise. Right away, God made a promise. We know it as the proto-euangelion of the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, the promise of a man, 
We don't know who that was at, at that point. We, don't, we know, of course, now, but they didn't know. It was just a, a Savior that would come who would defeat the evil one and rescue them and restore them as children of God and, in fact, finish the very work that Adam and Eve were commanded to do, to do and yet failed to do. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Salvation now, since then, is only by grace because of God's promise. Because since Adam's sin, all mankind are, are, are born dead in transgressions and sins, we read. Remo- removed from God's presence. Estranged and aliens. And, and, and if, man should, if mankind, if people should ever be alive ever again and have life in Christ, it can only be by God's grace. It can only be by God's initiative because He is the Alpha and the Omega of salvation. And so God now gives life to whom he chooses. And his love is his sovereign choice. It's not now and and never can be a matter of of human merit, of our earning, of of our works, or something we might produce. If you look in verse 4, you see that that Paul speaks both of God's love and and God's choice. He speaks about these brothers as loved by God and yet also chosen by God. Now, you know, of course, that Paul's theology was, was deeply rooted in the Old Testament. He was a biblical scholar of a, of a very high degree. And I actually have no doubt that he was uh, thinking in his mind of Deuteronomy 7, a very familiar passage to us and certainly to Jews of, of any day. And this is what that text says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, actually just one, Abraham. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Do you hear it? Why does God love his people? Because he chose to love his people. That's it. It can never be by human merit or human strength or anything in us. Not by might, not by our wisdom, not because we're such wonderful people. That's the consistent message of the Bible. It's not by might, not by power, not by human power, but by God's Spirit. But I want you to notice in verse 5 that that God's sovereign choice and calling is manifest in spiritual power. This is where it gets quite interesting, actually, because the gospel is proclaimed with words, as as you well know. But Paul says, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul's gospel proclamation, his kerux, was imputed with divine power. We're familiar with the the word from Isaiah when he said, "My, my, My word shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish whatever whatever it is I send it, send it. And so you have God's word proclaimed by man affecting whatever his holy purpose is. It's really quite amazing. If you think about it, divine power through 
human weakness. We might not think of that. We think of, of power and weakness as being mutually incompatible, exclusive. You're either weak or you're strong, but you can't be both at the same time. But what we're promised is divine power through human weakness. It often appears that, that preaching or witnessing or testifying of Christ is, is a, a futile activity and vain or worse. And Christians are often seen as, as rather foolish proclaiming a message concerning a humiliated and murdered Jew. And I'm telling you right now, every pastor wonders at one point or another in his ministry, am I simply wasting my time? Is this all for nothing? Am I expending my energy for nothing? But it is in fact the power of God and the wisdom of God. We as Presbyterians rightly call the Word of God a means of God's grace because God ministers His grace through the Word to His people by His power. What did Paul say? Faith comes by hearing. Thank you. And hearing by the Word of God. Paul testified to another church, I was with you in weakness. And yet God's power through Paul's weakness. And Paul brought this word to the Greek city of Thessalonica, these former pagans, God-haters. And it impacted a great number of people because it came in the power of God. And so Paul could speak of their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. This was not a church that was 10 or 20 or 50 years old. This was a, a very young congregation. And yet even as babes in Christ, their hearts and minds had been radically changed. Because here's the promise. In 2 Corinthians, they with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is by the Spirit. That's what God is doing among His people. We need to remember that when we're sharing the word, whether a preacher or someone just witnessing of Christ, that God is indeed working what he pleases. God is gathering his people, his sheep, and transforming them into his image and, and filling the earth with his glory. Yes, he's working even through these vessels of clay, even through weak men and women and children. It is God's power, but it's also our faithful labor in opening our mouths and sharing the word. So it's the Holy Spirit who grants new life in accordance with the, the power and decree of God. That's the first thing we see. It's the basis of the church's mission. Why would we preach anything unless God would bless that word with his power? Why would we try to plant a church but unless there would be the, the, the power of the Spirit behind it? But Paul continues to describe the, the, the changes he saw, the evidence of, of new life they now had because of their election. And he said they became followers or, or imitators. Now the word is similar in meaning to the word we know well, uh, disciple or learn. It's the idea of like an apprentice. It's one who learns from his teacher 
and becomes like his teacher in conduct and life. That's what a, a disciple is in the New Testament. It's, it's a learner, someone who becomes like his teacher. Remember, Jesus said, everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. But Paul records they became followers of us and of the Lord. Maybe that surprises you, that, that phrase there. They became followers of us and of the Lord. I, I might think that Paul would say, well, they be, became followers of, uh, of the Lord and us, or maybe just of the Lord. But it's not that surprising or puzzling once you think about it. I don't believe Paul is putting himself before the Lord as though he's more important than the Lord. We know that Paul didn't believe that at all. He saw himself as the chief of sinners. He's just describing what happened. Paul came to Thessalonica proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ, living for Christ. And so before they were converted, as they met Christ and saw Christ, Paul, met Paul and saw Paul, it's a Freudian slip, because they were seeing Christ in Paul. They were seeing the gospel. Paul made faith visible, if you will. They could see what faith looked like, what living for Christ looked like by observing Paul. So even when they were young in the Lord, before they had experienced much sanctification or spiritual growth, they, they observed how Paul lived and, and they imitated him. That's only natural, don't, don't you think? We, don't we imitate those we respect in one way or another? Because we want to be like them. In high school, I played trombone. It was my survival, actually, through those very tumultuous, tumultuous years in the 70s. And uh, my favorite trombone player then and, and, and still to this day, he's now deceased, but he played first trombone with the Stan Kenton Orchestra. His name was Dick Shear, and I still listen to him today. I listen to Stan Kenton, and it gives, it gives me chills. It's just amazing. And I, I began to imitate... Dick Shear's playings. Now, I was, I was maybe at, you know, one or maybe two percent of his level. Don't misunderstand. But I began to imitate my hero, and it made such a dramatic impact on my playing almost overnight. I can remember this like it was yesterday. We were playing in, in playing something, and one of the one of the, you know the trumpet players were behind or in front of the trombones, and one of the trumpet players turned back. And he literally said, whatever happened to Delosier? It was that dramatic of a change. And see, through imitation, as you know, a student copies his or her mentor, gaining more skill. Now, in time, that person tends to develop their own ways. And yet, even much later, after a lot of skill has gained, part of his or her teacher mentor is still with them, even as children are like their parents in a lot of ways. That, that parenting sticks with the kids. It's uh, hope for those of you young kids, but it's also a warning. Be careful. Paul said to the Philippians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do you want to imitate Christ? Paul said, imitate me. 
and you'll begin to imitate Christ. Watch me and you'll see Christ. Believe what I believe. Live what I leave. Imitate me and you'll begin to imitate Christ. And they did. They became followers of, of Paul and so they became followers of Christ. Becoming like their teacher. And in so doing they were becoming faithful disciples of the Lord. Think about Timothy. You know Timothy was probably Paul's most faithful companion and helper, one of them for sure. He was invaluable. Why? Why was Timothy, why did he stand out as a man of such high character? Well, here's what, here's what Paul said. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. See, Paul trained Timothy as a father trains his son. It's the principle of Proverbs chapter 1. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Listen to me. Pay attention and model what I show you. And Timothy grew in the Lord as he learned of Christ from Paul, his mentor, and his spiritual father. And I'm glad that our church is comprised of multiple generations from, I won't say who the oldest ones are, but they're sort of up front. <laughs> to, to some very young ones, praise God, because a church is strongest when it's comprised of multiple generations, but really only when there's effective interaction between generations. That homogeneous principle that we are taught back how many years ago in the church growth movement? Toss that bad boy out. We need fathers and, and children, mothers and, and children interacting. But I want you to notice there's another principle, another practice involved here. Because they had not only become imitators, but having imitated Paul and, and Christ, they became examples to, to still others. Paul wrote to Timothy... He wrote, you therefore, my son, be strong. Remember, again, Timothy was mentored by Paul. Timothy was fathered by Paul, essentially. He said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you see there, the, the disciple becomes the discipler. The trainee becomes the trainer. The student becomes a teacher. The son becomes a father. And, and this happened because of, of what the Thessalonians had become already. Paul uses the word there, tupos, which is simply the, the word type in English. It's, it means it's an image or a pattern or a reproduction. They had become a, a pattern of, of Paul and, and Christ so they could then teach others. And that 
might be a, a, a large problem in evangelical reformed churches in America today because so many aren't actually becoming the kind of person, a pattern or example that others would, would follow or should follow. It's a bit of the Hebrews problem. We, we become dull of hearing. We, we're still, so many are still babes in Christ. We ought now to be teachers like the Hebrews, but we're still babes. We're still infants. Peter said this to elders. He commanded, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, or but, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders are required to be examples to the flock. Elders must be mature believers so they can do that, so they can be worthy examples. But not elders only, not deacons only. All believers should seek to become mature believers and disciples that can then lead others. The Bible enjoins older believers to train and disciple younger believers. Look at Timothy or Titus 2. I'll just read it. You probably know this well as well. I know one person in this church knows it very well. But as for you, teach what, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we are to become believers who can teach others. We are to become examples of believers to believers. Or I might say we are to be examples of faith to faith. And maybe you've had, maybe you've been blessed with that, that Paul, male or female, so to speak, in your life. That worthy example, that mentor, someone who showed you Christ Someone who taught you and, and, and showed you the, the ways of maturity and made visible the principles of the Word of God. Maybe it was a parent, if you were so blessed. Maybe a teacher in a school, maybe an elder, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a, a, an older sibling, someone who taught you. But let not that end with you. In that passage I read earlier, 2 Timothy Two, two. There's actually four generations in that verse. Go back and look at it. Four generations. What you heard from me is three generations of, of disciples. Paul is revealing to us that this mentoring, this exampling that is then duplicated, that is the New Testament model for disciple making and the multiplication of churches. It's the MO of, of Equipping Leaders International. We train key leaders who then train many others. We call it training the trainers. And it's amazing to see the wildfire spread of the gospel in a place like India. It's working so powerfully and the, and the church is growing so fast. I wish you could hear the testimonies I've heard and, and, and hear the pastors and the, and the leaders share their vision. It's incredible. You know that India has always been a tough mission field, mostly. Hinduism and, and other 
false religions have been weaved into the very fabric of Indian culture for generations, and they've, it's created both an environment hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christ, and yet the very need for Christ, of course, because what can set people free from the bondage of false religion than Christ who delivers from prison, the one who came to set captives free? And for whatever reason, I know not the things of God, why he's doing this, but suddenly this spirit is working so powerfully in, 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 in India. Now, believers are still just a tiny, tiny percentage of the population, but, but the word is spreading fast and the, the church is strong. Last Saturday, a week ago, last night, I went to dinner with a friend of mine, Pastor Daniel and his wife. And he was sharing with us things that are going on. He said, not, not just a few are being converted. Thousands are being converted. And he personally was involved. He discovered that one of the... India has about 24, 25 different languages. And they can't really communicate with one another except either through Hindi or English. And he realized there's a language that 18 million Indians speak that does not have a Bible translation in their own language. And so he started working on that. And, and it's, it either was just published a few days ago or it's about to be published in the next few days. 18 million people that can now have the Word of God in their own language. I was there last Sunday at his church in Delhi honored to preach the Word of God, which is a wonderful experience. I'm glad to not need a translator here. If you don't mind my northern accent, maybe I do need a translator. <laughs> but he asked his own congregation, I forget the context, but he said, how many of you are first-generation believers, having been delivered from Hinduism or something else? How many of you are first-generation believers? A congregation well, it's two services, but the, each service is probably 50% larger than, than ours. And almost every hand went up. Fabulous. In the trip I was just on, we trained over two weeks about 50 or 55 of their top senior leaders. And those men in time will share the teaching we shared, biblical theology, with the 7,000 pastors that are associated with Serve India Ministries. Now, if you can do math in your head, just imagine every one of those pastors leads a church of just 50 people. That's 350,000 believers that we just impacted by going over there for two weeks. But Ebby, who's the leader of Serve India Ministries and was able to see his house and the compound there, I shouldn't say compound, the campus, really nice place in South India, a man of a great vision. He's a, such a blessing. Um, in the next few years, he wants to spread their influence or, or expand their influence to 20,000 pastors. Do the math. That's at least about one million believers. <laughs> That's the plan for effective multiplication. And that's just one organization that we partner with and just one organization in India. And another one, I was able to uh, speak with this gentleman in Maria, 
last uh, a couple of months ago at our dinner there down at Midway. And uh, for every leader, we, we, we train the top leaders. It's a hierarchy, not of, not of authority, but of, of training, really, of, disciple, of discipleship. And for every leader we train, 2,500 cell group leaders are trained. Do the math. It's staggering. And in fact, every leader, every pastor, every elder, every cell group leader is both being trained and training others. And in fact, you cannot be involved in this organization unless you commit to training others. Sort of India's modest goal is if you want to be one of the pastors that receives this training and perhaps a little bit of financial help, you just commit to mentoring five men to plant five churches in five years. That's all. Five men, five churches, five years. Think about it. And they're going to influence 20,000 pastors. Eli's goal is for there to be 500 million believers in India by 2040. And then India would start being ascending nation so that maybe we will receive Indian missionaries and they'll come minister the gospel to our nation. But if that happens, it will only be through this 2 Timothy 2.2 disciple-making principle and, of course, by the Spirit. But what about us? Don't be a dead end for the Word of God. Be fertile soil, of course. But we need to also be a sower scattering seed. A very unfortunate reality of modern American life is that we tend to be isolated from one another. And disciple-making really requires that Acts 2.42 commitment and involvement with one another. If you don't know what that is, just look at it this afternoon. Acts 2.42. The fellowship, the discipleship, the, the learning from one another and teaching youngers as, as Paul taught Timothy and others. See, if we're so busy that we have very little involvement in the lives of our brothers and sisters, the church is going to suffer, I promise you. The church is going to stay immature. No matter what's happening from the pulpit. More than that is required. And so when personal discipling is absent in the church, the cost is huge. You need to be involved with others in the discipleship process. I'm glad that we have some programs, Sunday school, men's meetings, women's discipleship. You could go outside the church to BSF or other things. How would you benefit if you were taught and trained and mentored by some spiritual Paul? And how would someone else benefit from you if you were then teaching what you were taught to someone else? See, when discipleship is happening and disciples are multiplying, the church becomes mature and the Word of God sounds forth. The Thessalonians, this is amazing, they had such, such success in proclaiming the gospel that Paul said, your faith has gone forth everywhere, not just Macedonia, not just Achaia, it's gone out, like, like, a, like a traveler on a long journey. The story was told of Greeks believing in a Jewish Messiah, crucified Messiah, 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, true faith is noticed because it's so radically different. It really is. And if the faith in today's church is largely unnoticed, it might be that we really haven't had that radical reorientation from idols to God. It might be that we're still serving the same idols. Money and pleasure and comfort and power. And that's actually what we're modeling to our children and to others who know us as well. Worldliness, idolatry, covetousness. If you read Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, you know that Christian didn't leave the city of destruction unnoticed. His friends and his family noticed because he rejected his prior life of unbelief with its priorities and passions. And you might ask yourself this question, are my chief loves and my chief passions different now than when I was an unbeliever? How has the Lord transformed me? What is the first and greatest commandment? The first and greatest commandment. To love God with all your strength and all your might. Because that is the first and foremost passion of faith. It's the one that trumps all others. We tend to think about doing stuff. And I'm not saying we don't need to talk about doing stuff. But if the first commandment, the chief passion, is to love God with all that you have, even above your own life. Because redemption is about restoring the pre-fall love relationship between mankind and God. It's about the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. Jesus came as Emmanuel, God, with us. Notice in verses 9 and 10, he said, they, they turned to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Christian life is this already and not yet world. We are saved. We have turned away from the natural idolatry of the natural man, but we know we're not home yet. We're on this journey. We're pilgrims. We're not yet back in Eden. And so we look and we wait. And in that looking and waiting, we set our life's activities and prayers and seeking first the kingdom of God. That was one of the first contemporary Christian songs I learned as a believer. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We don't, maybe we should choose that sometime. Just a suggestion. You know, our church's focus and activities must be fixed on the goal of multiplying disciples for the glory of God. That the gospel will sound forth to all nations. That is the fulfillment of the creation mandate. To multiply and fill the earth. Long ago, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he had a dream of a great image. And that dream, as we know, is a prophecy of things to come. And in this dream, I'm not going to recite the dream. You know it. You can look it up. But he also saw a stone, a stone that struck the great image and became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And I believe that's part of what frightened the king. And then Daniel said this, interpreting what that meant. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That great mountain is nothing less than the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what's incredible is that you and I have a part in that. It's amazing. Isaiah 66, 19, at the very end of Isaiah's prophecy, I will send survivors to the nations that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And Christ builds his church. And so when God's chosen and loved people everywhere Take up the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, having been trained by godly leaders and then training others. Christ the King will build this church through their gospel of witness and the knowledge of the glory of God will extend to the ends of the earth. May that be our heart's chief passion and may that be the chief mission of our church. May it always be in front of us in everything we do, in every decision we make, in every action of our congregation. I implore us. Amen.